I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the Sirens. Today we're talking about the movie The Angel and the Bad Man, which is a 1947 Western starring John Wayne, Gail Russell, Harry Carey, and Bruce Cabot. It was written and directed by James Edward Grant and produced by John Wayne. Grant and Wayne often collaborated, and this was the very first film that John Wayne produced. At the beginning of the movie, an injured gunman, an all-around bad man, (laughs) named Court Evans, played by John Wayne, and his reputation precedes him to this situation. He collapses on the land um, of a family of Quakers. The family's daughter, Penny, nurses him for three weeks and, in the intervening time, falls in love with him. As one does when someone's unconscious. That's right. You just fall in love with all the unconscious people. She did get to see his torso, so it must have been about that. Yeah, totally. So their sort of courtship is interrupted when Laredo, Stevens, and Hondo Jeffries, who are sworn enemies of Court Evans, come to town looking for court. So there's this back and forth between peaceful Penny and gun-wielding who uses his mean reputation to get rancher Fred Carson to open his dam to irrigate the ditches, but then also runs off to rustle a herd of cattle from Laredo and Hancho's men. Meanwhile, Kurt is also dogged by a marshal who has the best name ever, uh, Wistful McClintock, oh um, <laughs> whose one hope is to hang Kurt, albeit with a new rope. <laughs> Do you have any trivia about this movie? I do not a lot for this one, and you already stole one of them. Sorry. (laughs) Which was that this is the first movie that John Wayne produced. But I do have a couple little fun things. So John Wayne later starred in two films where his character carried the names of characters from this movie. So he played a character named Hondo in 1953 and a character named McClintock in 1963. So they just keep... Circulating the same names in these westerns, I guess. As you do in West westerns. So, the failure of the original copyright holder to renew the film's copyright resulted in it falling into public domain uh, back in the 70s. So, this was like a while ago. Yeah. And because of this, many versions of the film available on the market are severely edited and of really poor quality <laughs> because they were duped so many times. So, like a lot of versions of the film come from already second or third versions of the film. I wonder if we saw the same version. (laughs) That's what I was wondering, because I got mine out of the library, and it was like an official DVD, and you watched it on YouTube, so you might have comments like, why did it just cut from this scene to that scene? And I'll be like, that didn't happen. (laughs) My comments will be more like, why didn't this movie end 20 minutes earlier? (laughs) (laughs) John Wayne was five months older than John Halloran, who played Penny's father in the movie, and 17 years older than Gail Russell, who was his love interest. Which, honestly, was pretty obvious from when you saw them together. Like, he looked pretty old. Although, he... He looked like he was, like, 40. Well, so I was surprised, actually, to learn that he he was 40. He was born in 1907, and this movie was made in 1947, so he was 40 years old. I actually didn't think that he looked quite that old. But she looked so young. She did look so young. I thought she might have been, like, 18. How old was she, really? I think she was 23, maybe, at the time of this movie. Yeah, I guess that would make sense, 23 and 40. Um, But, you know, and Hollywood's still doing the same thing. It's fine. (laughs) Right? They cast Javier Bardem 
Opposite yeah. Jennifer Lawrence as a married couple. I mean, it's not like these things never happen, but it's just the norm. Right. And no, what normally happens in Hollywood. Yeah. Great. So, <laughs> that was great. Um, it was rumored that John Wayne and Gail Russell had an affair during the filming, although most accounts say that that was untrue, but it was kind of a big scandal at the time. And Was he between wives? Do we know? I think he was <laughs> with um, Chada... Oh. I can't remember her last name, but she got really jealous and assumed they were having an affair. Uh, and he claimed he just spent a great deal of time with Russell because he felt protective of her um, because she had severe anxiety and he had had those problems in the past, so he related to her. So because he was 17 years older than her. <laughs> great. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know how much I buy I mean, I don't know if they had an affair or not, but, like, older male co-star hanging around his on-screen love interest to be protective. I don't know how much much I believe that. Um, And that's it for my trivia. The only... I found three, like, sort of, not so much trivia, but interesting bits. One was that the movie was filmed in Flagstaff in Sedona, Arizona, and also in Monument Valley, Utah, which... When I saw that on the internet somewhere, it occurred to me that I don't actually know where this movie is set. Like, is it in Arizona? Is it in Utah? Is it in Wyoming? Where is it? Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions to you. What state is this in? Generally in the West. It's fine. (laughs) The other thing that I saw was that it, that this movie inspired two other, like, sort of fish out of water films. One, the 1985 movie Witness, starring Harrison Ford, which is begins in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. um, and is sort of similarly uh, like a, a, a bad guy going to live among the, the peaceful people. Um, and then also the 2000 movie, 2003 movie, The Outsider, which I'm not familiar with, but apparently stars Tim Daly and Naomi Watts. Have you seen The Witness? I haven't, se- I haven't seen it. I feel like Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm a bad Philadelphian. No, I haven't seen it either, and I mean, I'm from this area, but... Um... I'm curious if it goes the same direction with him sort of being converted in the end. Yeah, spoiler alert. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, podcast listeners. Well, can I tell you about Gail Russell's sad life? Yeah, because I don't actually know anything about her, and I was sort of sad to hear that she, like everyone else we have talked about, comes to a Well, have you noticed that it's all the female actors who end up Surprise! Have, yeah, I mean they have different and difficult expectations set by <laughs> studios and audiences, and then the men are just fine. It's fine. So okay. Um, I thought I have not seen her in anything else no, except I this. Either. I thought she, she is so incredibly beautiful. You could yeah. see, like, I was just like struck by her, but you could see why, like, she would be this big star because she totally commanded the screen but um she was born elizabeth russell in chicago to george and gladys russell and when she was a teenager her family moved to la and russell was spotted by a paramount talent scout at her high school in santa monica paramount you do. <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know why a scout would be at a high school but maybe that was how it was then yeah Paramount signed her to a contract immediately after she graduated, and because of her incredible beauty, they groomed her to be one of their top stars. But she was painfully shy and had no acting experience, so they gave her tons of coaching to prepare her. 
And her first film was when she was 19 years old with a small role as Virginia Lowry in Henry Aldrich Gets Glamour in 1943. In 1944, she appeared in The Uninvited, which was a profitable horror movie. And I think she's pretty well known for that role and it kind of made me want to watch that movie. Um, but that was also the first time she used alcohol to steady her nerves on set. It almost sounds like she might have had like a social anxiety disorder uh, or something, but yeah. she was forced into this role. That kind of became a sad recurring theme throughout her life. She just of, drink and set. Yeah, and that was like the only way she could get through it. So maybe that's how she and John Wayne got to be close, because they were just drinking all afternoon on set. Oh yeah, I looked into some stuff on their live lives, and there were like tons of DUIs, and like they couldn't even walk into buildings. But people had to carry them places. Like yeah, so um, great. <laughs> her third film, also in 1944, was her breakout hit when she co-starred with Diana Lynn in Our Hearts Were Young and Gay, based on a popular book. Oh, I've seen that. Oh, you have. So you've so seen, I've her seen her a movie. Else. Okay. Do you recognize her? No. I, no. I didn't know that until the right this minute. <laughs> uh, she it's a good movie and a good book, actually. Would, would it be worth adding to our list? Yeah, it's sort of ridiculous, but... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so she starred in a number of modestly successful films in the following years until she was cast with John Wayne in this movie, which was a huge hit. But she continued to struggle with alcohol addiction, which became an increasing problem for the studio in subsequent years. So in 1950, the same year she married matinee idol Guy Madison, Paramount decided against renewing her contract due to her drinking problems. Uh, She was convicted of operating a motor vehicle while under the influence, and the studio didn't want its name attached to scandal like that. Wow. So after being dumped by Paramount, she didn't get as many film roles. I think it kind of gave her a bad reputation. And after Air Cadet in 1951, she disappeared from the screen for the next five years while she attempted to get her life under control and deal with her alcoholism. She divorced Madison in 1954, and then she appeared on the big screen again in the mid to late 1950s, but in more minor roles and more like low-budget B-type movies. Uh, She never did get better, and her alcoholism worsened until she appeared in her last film, The Silent Call, in 1961. And on August 26th of that year, she was found dead at age 36 in her Los Angeles studio apartment, surrounded by empty liquor bottles. So sad. And and I also read that in that last movie she appeared in, even though she was only thirty six, she would look like super aged. Wow. By the um all the alcohol. Yeah. The alcoholism was really the cause of her death. Like her liver was shot and I think she aspirated. So That's horrible. I know. It was hard. I felt so because watching this movie, since I wasn't familiar with her, I was like, she seems great. Like, I like her acting. And then I read, I mean, not that she wasn't great, but it's just, you know, after talking about Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe, there's it's Doris Day is still alive. Yeah, Doris Day. We, we need to, we need to. We're no way died of old age. <laughs> So, Catherine Hepburn died of old age. Yeah, we need to... Oh, wait, do, I think this just proves that we need to watch more Catherine Hepburn movies. Yes. 
I agree. I mean, I would never say no. (laughs) Do you have a more positive John Wayne story? (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) So, John Wayne was born Marion Robert Morrison in 1907 in Iowa. He, soon after his birth, his, or not soon after his birth, but when he was a child, his parents changed his name to Marion Mitchell Morrison because they had another kid and wanted to name him Robert. Soon after that, his family moved to Southern California. A local fireman at the station on his route to school in Glendale started calling him Little Duke because he never went anywhere without his huge Airedale terrier, whose name was Duke. He preferred the name Duke to Marion anyway, and that nickname stuck, and it was a nickname that stuck with him the rest of his life. He worked at a local film studio after losing a football scholarship um, at USC due to a body surfing accident. And um, But because of his connection to USC and as a favor to the USC football coach, Howard Jones, who had given silent Western film star Tom Mix tickets to USC games, director John Ford and Tom Mix hired John Wayne as a prop boy and an extra. So who said football never got anybody anywhere. (laughs) Wayne later credited his walk and his talk and his persona to his acquaintance with Wyatt Earp, actually, who was really good friends with Tom Mix. Wayne pretty quickly moved on from being an extra to bit parts, got him to know um, John Ford, who would become a lifelong friend, um, and the director who provided most of John Wayne's roles throughout the rest of his career. When he was working for Fox Film Corporations in those in those um, bit roles, he was given an on-screen credit as Duke Morrison only once for the movie Words and Music, which was produced in 1929. Director Raul, Raul Walsh saw him moving studio furniture while he was a prop boy and cast him in his first starring role in the movie The Big Trail in 1930, which was a failure. But for his screen name, Raul Walsh wanted to call him Anthony Wayne after Revolutionary War General Mad Anthony Wayne. But the studio chief rejected it because it sounded too Italian. Oh my gosh. And then um, the second choice was John Wayne. The studio chief agreed, and um, the name was set without even like consulting John Wayne. Wait, I'm sorry. Wayne is not an attack. I know, but Anthony is, apparently. Anthony Wayne. Doesn't that just scream like the old country? <laughs> I guess. <laughs> But, and, and his start was such, like, a old-school Hollywood start of, like, I was an errand boy. I was moving furniture. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So his breakthrough role came in John Ford's 1939 movie, Stagecoach. John Ford was trying to make an A-list movie, and but John Wayne was a B-list movie at the time, so there was that sort of caused some difficulties in getting financing. But then Stagecoach became a huge critical and financial success, and Wayne became a mainstream star. During World War II, he did not... He was a little bit too old to just enlist in the war as just a a soldier. And there's some... I read a lot of different accounts of, you know, how he may have tried to join various, like, military operations and didn't either was rejected or kept like putting it off to say I'm just gonna make one or two more movies and then I'm gonna join but he ended up touring U.S. bases and hospitals in the South Pacific for three months in 1943 and 1944 with USO and in the end many people 
sort of said that his failure to serve in the military was one of the most painful parts of his life, one of his deepest regrets. His his widow actually later suggested that his super patriotism in later life sprang from that guilt. Um, she said that he, quote, be, would become a super, super patriot for the rest of his life trying to atone for staying home. However, the U.S. National Archives recorded that Wayne, in fact, applied to serve in the Office of Strategic Services, which is the like predecessor to the CIA, and he was accepted within the U.S. Army's, like, whatever their liaison group to the OSS was. The OSS commander actually wrote a letter to Wayne informing him of his acceptance into the field photographic unit, but the letter went to his estranged wife, Josephine's home, and she never told him about it. Oh. Which sort of seems... I don't know if I believe that, just because I feel like if he actually was accepted during wartime, they would have either tracked him down and said, like, hey, like... <laughs> right. There would have been... Also, he was famous, so I have some questions. He appeared in nearly two dozen of John Ford's films over the course of 20 years, and including the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Vance in 1962 with James Stewart, which was the first movie in which he called someone Pilgrim. John Ford's movie The Searchers in 1956 is often considered John Wayne's finest and most complex performance. He won a Best Actor uh, Oscar for True Grit in 1969. That award came 20 years after his only other nomination. But he was also nominated as producer of Best Picture for the movie The Alamo, um, one of two films he directed. The other movie he directed was The Green Beret, which was made in 1968, and it also has the distinction of being the only major film made during the Vietnam War that actually supported the war. Throughout his life, he was John Wayne was a vocally prominent conservative Republican in Hollywood and supported a variety of anti-communist positions. He, during his college years, he sort of self-described as a socialist, um, and he voted for FDR in the 1936 presidential election and, like, expressed admiration both for Roosevelt and for Harry S. Truman, but he took part in creating the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals in February 1944 and was elected president of um, that organization in 1949. He was his ardent. He was an ardent anti-communist and a vocal supporter of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Oh God! Um, yeah, great. <laughs> he was one. Of, he was an investigator for the HUAC, apparently. Declassified Soviet documents apparently reveal that, despite Joseph Stalin being a big fan of John Wayne's movies, he contemplated assassinating John Wayne because of his frequently espoused anti-communist politics. Who knew? Um, what, he, what would that entail? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What would you do? I don't know. How would Stalin assassinate like, Wayne? He was like such a petty assault. Like, he, he was not playing some crucial, like, government role. I think the, like, the issue was that he was, like, representing a certain kind of American ideal. It is remarkable to me that Stalin contemplated. <laughs> That's so funny because... You know, we also did the Charlie Chaplin movie, The Great okay. Dictator, and Hitler also liked Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. As thought he was great, but also, you know, wanted his movies banned because he thought he was Jewish and he made fun of him. Culture. Um, All art is political. That's right. Just in case anyone is wondering. John Wayne was diagnosed with lung cancer in 1964. He defied advice from his agent and other people around him and went public with 
the diagnosis. He actually is also credited with coining the phrase the big C as a euphemism for cancer. Um, he was declared cancer-free in 1969, um, but in 1979, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer and died that year. Um, in 1999, the American Film Institute named him 13th among the great male screen legends of classic Hollywood, which I would say. I think, so did he, he never won an Academy Award? He did. He won Best Actor for True Grit in 1969. Okay, all right. Because he seems like another one of those actors who is so much a part of the culture but didn't get, like, a ton of critical acclaim. Yeah. I don't think he's the best actor <laughs> based on this film. No. I look Al Russell was way better than this movie. Yeah, I mean, there are some moments where there were, like, glimmers of him, like, possibly acting well, but I also think that there were some problems with the script so that I couldn't actually tell, like, what he was actually supposed to be feeling. Yeah. Should we get into it? Yes. <laughs> On that note. Well, I general disclaimer, I hate westerns. So this was, but I will say, I'm just going to put myself out on the line with this movie. I know what I hate, and it's not that, I did not hate this movie. I, I feel like I read in several places that this movie actually was a departure from westerns. Yeah. And I don't know if that was just partly because there was a huge, like, religious mm-hmm. theme to it or if it was like there was less gun slinging or that's what I like wrestling it. yeah because I I wrote in my notes brawl and chase scenes are so boring which is why I think I don't like what I'm just not into that kind of stuff I also I'm the same about action movies like you know the main character's not gonna die in right. these scenes and I, I just don't care I'm like all right let's get back to the plot that's right but this movie, a lot of the central story was not that. It was about how to be a good person. And mm-hmm. even though the romance was, like, really problematic in a lot of ways, I still... I was interested. Yeah. I mean, in, in all the, like, chase scenes and the, like, the cattle rustling scenes and all the, like, the brawl in the bar, I like, I couldn't keep track of who was who and who was doing what. And so, like, I just needed to you know, get a little taste that a fight was happening and then, like, cut to yeah. the aftermath. Like, Move who on. survived? <laughs> we're, we're we assume John Wayne is surviving. <laughs> we are not the target audience for these types of movies. Evidently not. My oh. dad is so disappointed in me right now. <laughs> <laughs> the Quakers saved this movie. This, I have to say, I think that this is maybe the most religious movie I have ever seen, including the movie A Man Called Peter, which is about the Presbyterian a chaplain for the U.S. Congress during World War II. But I still think that the, this is the most religious movie I've seen. <laughs> but have you seen The Passion of the Christ? Okay. <laughs> Except for a movie about, about the, the actual crucifixion. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. I was not expect. I really had no idea what this was about yeah. before we watched it, so... I was kind of pleasantly surprised. And in the beginning, when they were, like, espousing nonviolence, I was like, oh, this this sounds like Quaker stuff, but this wouldn't be Quakers. They're, like, out in the Southwest somewhere. They left, well, yeah, somewhere. They're somewhere, somewhere out Southwest. Out, somewhere. Out they left Pennsylvania and went. So they go, you know how they say that they're going, you know, to first day and they're going to meeting? Mm-hmm. So what they show is... Not meeting for worship. They show meeting for learning and meeting for business, which is a like the part of me that has been exposed to actual Quaker, like present day culture. I felt very proud of myself for knowing the difference between meetings. But I don't know if that like I don't know if they meant to do that. 
I don't know. Um, disclaimer, Hillary once worked for a Quaker organization, <laughs> so you're going to have better insights into this, but we do live in a part of the country where there's still, like, a significant Quaker population. Yeah, That's, and Quaker influence. Yeah, it. which is why probably most people are like, who, who are these people? <laughs> the Society of Friends. There were, there were also, I, I don't know, I'm very, because I worked for a Quaker organization, I am... A, I think, aware of all of the, like, friendly puns that people make, and there were, like, not quite enough, I think, in this movie. <laughs> we needed more puns. We needed more friendly puns. That's what we needed. Yeah. What did you think... So you mentioned briefly shirtless Quirt. What did you think of him as a character? I honestly didn't know what to make of him. It wasn't clear to me, like, how much of a bandit he was. Like, was he actually out just killing people and stealing money and yeah. stuff like that? Or was he just kind of, like, a minor bad guy? You know what I mean? Like, I guess I wanted to know what where the line was. Like, was this person a murderer? Right. Did he actually, like, was his soul already tarnished? Well, because they, like, referenced the fact that he was a deputy to Wyatt Earp. Mm-hmm. Which, does that mean that he, like, was out having, like, shootouts in, like, western towns? Or, yeah, or is, did he just, like, ride with Wyatt Earp and, like, reputation by association? They never explain that at all. Like, they just mentioned that, and I was thinking that was going to lead to a conversation later in the movie where John Wayne says something like, Oh yeah, I was on the good side, and then I got disillusioned with it, which is why I turned to this, or some sort of explanation of like how he got to be this outlaw, but right. they never give that. Right, and he clearly has a, like, a reputation as being a, like, a bad guy. Yeah, everyone in the town's afraid of him. Yeah, and he uses it to, his, to the advantage of the, the Quaker family, the Worth family, but you know, by going to the ranger and saying, like, you will undam your dam, and he does it without, basically without any question. I I really liked that little transformation of the neighbor where mm-hmm. he's such a grouch, and then he comes down and he's like, oh, of course I'll do this, and they give him a bunch of pies, and then he's real happy. Because it reminded me of real life, how sometimes those kind of people are actually, like, if you are just a little nice to them at all, that, yeah. like, actually they're just lonely people. Right, and you just need to give them a dozen donuts and they're fine. Yeah, and then they're, yeah. And, and then they irrigate your farm. Yeah, and then they irrigate It's fine. Yeah. Um. <laughs> what did you think? I thought it was really funny in the beginning when Court was unconscious and then... <laughs> Penny was listening to him talk about the other women, and you like she was basically just acting with her face, like, yeah. Why she fills out this dress really well? <laughs> you know? I thought that was great. Basically, everything that happened while Court was unconscious was amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was interesting to see. I really thought. I don't know how many Quakers like take it to this extreme today, but just to see the level to, of nonviolence to which they espoused yeah. with, like, really putting their whole family in danger by having him there and, like, having a bunch of scary men come to the door with a gun, but they, yeah. like, still wouldn't put the bullets in the gun. And um, at the very end, when Penny takes the gun from court, and I feel like the odds of what actually happened were very slim in that, and most likely he would have just been killed. Right. So, I mean, like, yeah, I 
totally imagined that the end of the movie was actually Laredo and Hunter coming out and shooting him in front of the Quakers. Yeah. And that was how the movie, like, he dies in her arms. and That would have been the realistic ending. Yeah. And then she would have had to live with that was the actual result of their non-violence taken to its full end. Lesson. <laughs> Lesson, the man you love dies. That's right. I mean, I guess I, I had a lot of problems with some of the narrative arc of this movie, including that it could have ended 20 minutes earlier, at least. But I sort of liked, like, the insertion of the marshal periodically as a, like, coming in to, like, sort of try and frame him. Yeah. And, and also make him feel certain ways about his relationship with Penny. But then, like, the ultimate result is that he, like, comes in and, sh- and, like, sort of saves the day and, like, is, like, neatly wraps it up so that he shoots the two other bad guys so that um, Court's soul isn't tarnished. And sort of a, like, he, everyone gets what they want then. But his soul. <laughs> well, he's a marshal, so. <laughs> Soulless already. Um, did you buy the romance between Court and Penny? It just... She basically just looked at him, and then it was like, she knew. That's what happens in real life, right? You just, like, look at each other, and there's sparks fly, and that's it, right? And I had a hard time believing that someone with a lot of life experience like him would be okay with such an innocent woman. Yeah, well, and it was hard to tell how old she was supposed to be, like, what she's supposed to be. I mean, she's a young, like, her bro- her younger brother is a little kid. Yeah. And so, is she 22, or is she, like, 16? Yeah, I thought she was, like, 17 or 18. That was my read on it, and then, or that's how old the character was supposed to be, which made it seem even weirder that John Wayne was so old. You know? <laughs> and, like, he was, you know, he had his... Brothel ladies. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> he didn't... I just felt like I can't imagine him settling down to be a farmer and having this wife, like, lecturing him all the time about being a better person. Yeah. and Because there must have been some sort of draw to that kind of exciting lifestyle of stealing people's cattle and, like, <laughs> living out in the open <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I had good predictions for this. No, they probably. Well, yeah. I mean, although they're out there in the west, so probably they get mauled by coyotes or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know there weren't enough friend puns for you, but did you like the the and thou yeah. puns because they yes. come up in the Philadelphia story also? I was like, there's a lot of Quaker ref- for it being such a small religious sect in this country. Yeah, they're yeah. showing up in the movies. I know. <laughs> <laughs> They're overrepresented. Yeah. I I don't actually know any Quakers who still use the and now. I think, I mean, I, I'm sure the Quaker community is just as diverse as any other religious community. But although some Quaker I knew once, his, like, grandparents apparently were, used the and now. So I don't know how far removed it actually is from normal, not normal, but, like, present day conversation yeah i i like that because there's also i mean it's not the same but in german there's a way that you can address people with uh as you but like an informal that implies that you are at the same level or close um yeah french and spanish have that too 
And it's, I, I, I wish we had something like that in English. Yeah. Well, because it does, like, change, like, your attitudes towards people, the way that you speak towards them, and you can sort of, like, indicate your, like, your anger, upset by suddenly using the formal you. Yeah. With, you know, somebody you would usually use, like, being now with. With, like, your sister. You're, like, yeah. You're not my sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, back in the day, that it used to really get Quakers into trouble because they would address people as equals who were supposed to be their superiors. Yeah. Um, but it was like this way of representing their egalitarian beliefs. So, I mean, beyond the humor of this, there's <laughs> equal rights for all. Yeah. Um, I thought there were a lot of great little like humorous scenes in this movie. Yeah. Um, I love when. John Wayne was shoveling hay into the stall, and he puts it, like, right on the cow's head, yes, and then the okay. cow's, like, acting really annoyed. Yeah. I yeah. laughed at that. Well, and at some point he says, if I'm going to be holy, i I got to get some fun out of it, which I don't remember anymore, like, what that was referring to, but it was just, like, a little zinger. Yeah. Um... At one point, someone asks Penny, like, what's that? And she's like, it's a baby. She's <laughs> holding the baby. And I was like, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing that was striking to me about this movie is was the score. Yeah, I mean, I stopped paying attention to it. Like, I immediately felt like it was extremely dramatic. <laughs> well, it, the music was good, but it was employed in that way that told you how to feel about it every yeah. character. Yeah. Like, someone would come on screen and it would be like, da, 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 and you'd be like, alright, this is a bad person. This guy's scary. In fact, like, a lot of things in this movie were really, like, things that are stereotypes now, or that people parody about westerns, yeah. were just happening in a sincere way in this movie. Yeah. So it was hard to watch it straight, like, you know, when someone walks into the saloon and the doors swing and everyone swivels to look to see who it is. (laughs) Or, like, there's going to be a shootout in the street and everyone's, like, diving for cover. (laughs) That it was... Like, I just couldn't watch that as without thinking it was supposed to be funny. When, really, it was not supposed to be funny in this movie. Yeah. It's just supposed to be serious Western. Yes. Beautiful girl what a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do but give my heart to you? What did you think about costumes? Uh, Aside from shirtless Kurt Evans. It was funny because that, like, I'm sure that was supposed to be really sexy at the time. <laughs> but just put a shirt on, please, but it's <laughs> Yeah, I kind of was just like, eh, I don't really want to see that. And, uh... But it's such different standards from, mm-hmm. like, what men are expected to look like now. Yeah. It would be, like, you'd have to be totally waxed and, like, the kind of person who spent five hours at the gym every day. But the costumes really didn't make a huge impression on me. The only ones that I thought were interesting enough that I, like, made a note of were um, Lila's oh, The yeah. Two Prostitutes yeah. costumes, which were, like, very corseted. And had sequins all over them, and yeah. like feathers and stuff. Yeah, and I liked them. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I would wear. <laughs> what did you think? I mean, I always think about like just the idea of like women in the old west having to wear like dresses. Like it just seems so unfair that you would be out there in the untamed, untamed. 
wilderness, like wearing dresses and whatever else instead of pants. Like, just oh, yeah, wear yeah. pants already. Like, you have to <laughs> fight the elements all the time in your farming and unforgiving landscape and just wear pants. Yeah, they had like petticoats and stockings and long skirts. It and it looked so hot there yeah. too. So not not very comfortable. No, definitely. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness. Um, what about the social justice themes? I mean, we talked a little bit about the, you know, just the Quaker element of it. Just the fact that they are Quakers and their Quakers are so all about like equal rights and egalitarian principles and pacifistic, like that sort of provided a like a tone of social justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought their radical acceptance of him, despite mm-hmm. like everything he'd done. I mean, it was it, it was unusual to see that in a movie. Yeah, because even you know they were Christian. It's just a very different portrayal of like a Christian sect than you would see today because so often today it's very associated with going much more the other direction and like being like ah pro self-defense and like all this stuff right yeah Um, it's totally different from what we're used to seeing so i thought it actually did have like a decently strong social justice message and that they were kind of they were trying to help turn this guy's life around and even though he like kept messing up they yeah. still accepted him. And, like, the way he used intimidation to get their neighbor to, like, change the irrigation. Yeah. And instead of, like, I was thinking, oh, they're going to yell at him because he, he he was still using sort of, like, a indirectly violent method. And they were just like, God works in mysterious ways. And I was like, you guys are the real deal. We <laughs> <laughs> don't even get mad about that. Yeah. So I thought it did have a social justice message, but... Um, very just limited to his character. Living yeah. my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. So, this movie. <laughs> do you think it passed the Bechtel test? No. <laughs> do you? No. Um, I kept paying attention to the scenes with Penny and her mother to see if they ever had a conversation that was not in some way about relationships but they never did so yeah I mean even when they were like about like going to milk the cow or feed the cow or whatever they were still like basically essentially about Penny and Court's relationship yeah so none of the other women really had anything to say. <laughs> the few other, the few other women had very little sense. Um, what rating would you give this maybe I'd probably give it a three and a half <laughs> you say with great hesitation. Yeah, I can't remember what other movies I've given 3.5, but, I mean, I'm not sad that we watched it, but I also spend a lot of the time watching this movie going, what, what, what is happening? I can't tell what's happening. <laughs> I, I don't know what to give it, because I really did, I was prepared to totally hate it, and I yeah. didn't, but I don't think I would ever rewatch it. Yeah. So, maybe I'd give it, I'll give it a 2.5. Okay. Which is not to say that it's terrible. <laughs> we won't watch movies that we would give a one or a two, so. <laughs> <laughs> and we did a Western. We're being open-minded. That's right. We're very open-minded. 
in. I think the one western that has like very few chaser ball <laughs> scenes and is about Quakers. So <laughs> he picked the Quaker western by accident. That says a lot about us and our movie choices. <laughs> so what's our next movie, Hill? Our next movie is the Philadelphia Story. Finally, with more Quakers. Quakers. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be great. <laughs> if you thought you didn't have enough Quakers in this movie, <laughs> just wait. We have more of them waiting for you next time. <laughs> May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.